You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Last year, then US Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taiwan, despite threats of retaliation from Beijing over the visit. Dr. Samantha Hoffman speaks in Adege Roland about Chinese propaganda, the different approaches Beijing takes and how effective it is, including the propaganda around Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit. Well, good afternoon, Nadege. We're so happy to have you here in our Canberra office today. We have about 10, 15 minutes to speak with you. So I wanted to jump right in and, and ask you a question, which I think is a feature of conversations that probably both you and I are having with, with experts and, and people grappling with China issues around the world. Is Chinese propaganda effective? Right. Uh, okay, just jumping right in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, and and it's great to see you uh, here in Canberra, Sam. So, pro- Chinese propaganda is it effective? I think that people tend to think about propaganda as something that is a little bit of old fashioned. You know, when you think propaganda, you think dictators riding white horses or uh, things that are so obvious to the smart thinkers that. They're not going to be susceptible to it. And it's easily dismissive as something that is uh, not effective for that reason. Um, I would say that um, in terms of what China is doing, the way I would frame it is that it's not just that kind of propaganda, which is happening domestically, has you know so, several forms um, as a way of controlling the CCP narrative inside of China. Uh, it has also an external arm, uh, external propaganda or greater external propaganda, as the party calls it. But it's also uh, meant mostly uh, to shape the perception of others. So it's not necessarily that uh, um, the central propaganda department in Beijing wants the rest of the world to see Xi Jinping as this great leader, although I think it wants that. But it's mostly about um, shaping the perceptions of how we see China, um, trying to, to shape it in ways that are more positive or um, less critical uh, in, in various ways. And it it takes various forms, really. I mean, um, actually, I feel like I should ask you the question because you're the real specialist about how these things work. Um, but you have, you know, state-led media that are using uh, party lines and disseminating it uh, abroad in various languages. So that's the sort of a tipping end of, of the iceberg, the propaganda iceberg. You have um, also the, the use of uh, various um, uh, non-Chinese voices uh, to also convey either the messaging or the narrative, a preferred narrative from Beijing. And you know, in evaluating and assessing whether this is effective, I think you would need to look more precisely in um, the kind of tropes that are delivered by the party system and how they sort of resonate in various countries or um, through various voices abroad. And I can cite, you know, a few um, perhaps to 
demonstrate how pervasive these tropes can be and um, how people sort of absorb them and repeat them without even thinking about them as being actual propaganda uh, themes and tropes. The fact that um, our perhaps that our economic prosperity uh, as businesses and as countries or nations really depends on China and on, on, the, on the big Chinese market. If we're not there, if we don't trade with China, then we're going to um, be hurt uh, or from, or from one way or, or another. I think that's really an important one that's been enduring. You know, the big China market is really... Uh, the attractive place to be, and we need to really engage economically with with China for that reason. Another one would be there's this different forms of propaganda. So that's the positive incentive one, but there are forms of whataboutism that can also uh, serve China's propaganda. Like, who are you really? Uh, is is your system really better? Uh, uh, your system of governance really better uh, than China's. China has demonstrated some sort of uh, success, you know, lifting people out of poverty and things like that. So basically sowing doubts about the validity, legitimacy of, of the liberal uh, democratic system. Um, I don't know, I could, I could do, go down the list, but I don't want uh, the um, audience to get bored. <laughs> Well, one thing that came to mind when you were speaking is recently um, somebody had asked me, they said, well, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, um, China really tried to prevent her from going and she still went anyway. So Chinese propaganda was was ineffective, wasn't it, was the question that I was asked. And I said, well, it depends on what the intended strategic outcome was. And I, I tend to think that we don't always know the answers to to that question right now, we might know in, in the future, but what, what's your perspective and how, how is it that we try to understand uh, what China's intent is, either through a specific propaganda campaign or uh, more broadly through its propaganda strategy? How, um, how should we understand what it's trying to do um, and what kinds of tools should we, should we use to try to make that assessment? Yeah, that's a very... Very interesting and also complex question, really, because sometimes the propaganda is not necessarily intended, or the or the actions um, or or tools for influence. So that's broadening the spectrum a little bit of what we're um, how we're thinking about propaganda. It's tools of influence can have an outcome that is outside of the silo that we're thinking uh, about. So we have these discussions about economic coercion and their efficiency. Uh, have countries that have been victims of economic coercion by China actually suffered from it economically? The, the, the answer might be, well, actually, businesses were able to diversify and find new markets, so the economic impact might not be that big. And therefore, we might think, this is not efficient as a tool. Um, and I would argue that it's because you're not looking at the bigger picture of the potential political impact it's going to have on the country that is the recipient. And things like thinking twice about criticizing China because you've been bitten once, you don't want it to happen again. And also in terms of how other countries are going to look at what's happened and think, oh, this is a topic that China really doesn't want us to talk about or to 
uh, to criticize or to um, demonstrate resistance against. And therefore, I'm going to self-censor myself just to make sure that I'm not going to be the subject of that kind of uh, coercion. So I think this is one way of thinking about, if, again, the efficiency um, of, of these kinds of, of, of influence mechanism. I think coercion is also part of how you influence. Now, about the, the Pelosi trip, to me, what was interesting is that it creates, I mean, I'm based in the U.S. with NBR, and it really created a lot of I wouldn't say disruption, but sowing doubts, you know, lots of debates about is it really good? Is it really a good thing for her to go? Isn't that going actually to anger China? Is it dangerous? We're going to spark a crisis. Is it really worth it? You know, and so a lot of pushing and pulling about about that, you had some signaling arriving more or less indirectly through uh, American China scholars saying, you know, the PLA is really on alert and they're going to fly jets. And so creating this sense of the imminent danger and therefore pushing uh, the doubts about the legitimacy of that action. And um, so you might, you might think that Pelosi went and it didn't create a third world war, and therefore the propaganda was not efficient. But I think it really, you could see all these tensions happening inside of the domestic American debate. And that was actually a very interesting petri dish for yeah. Beijing to observe, to see what, you know, where, which buttons are you going to push for, push on next time to get that sort of reaction to um, sow doubts into the policy or decision-making in Washington. And I think that's a very, it was a, a basic, an, a, a live case study of how you, how you can use these tools next time uh, for operations of a bigger scope and scale, perhaps. Exactly. And in that sense, the, the propaganda was effective. And I think it also is revealing of how little we understand about um, China's signaling, mm -hmm. um, which is a whole other topic we, we probably don't have time for today. Um, I suppose um, digging into the sort of last half of, of that question and thinking about another broader issue in the field of China studies, how is it that we prepare scholars or uh, researchers of China to think about how to ask the right questions mm. when they're approaching um, research on China and more importantly, how to develop more sophisticated answers to those questions. I won't say we'll always be right, but uh, but develop more sophisticated answers to, to those questions as access to China and access to information from China is constantly being reduced. That's also a very difficult one, but I would say that... Uh, it certainly is true that access has been reduced, will probably continue to be reduced. Um, obviously, because of COVID, our, we couldn't really travel that easily to China. Now it's starting to go back. Uh, scholars can go go back and, and see their counterparts. And the, the information space is slowly getting restricted also, especially when you when you're outside of China. 
all hope is not lost. You know, there are still lots of data and information that are still available as open sources for uh, people to um, get a peek into um, uh, various various issues. We m might have to go back to, you know, exploring again the methodologies that... Uh, like old Sinologists used to uh, uh, use back in the 60s and 70s, where China was really, really closed. But that would mean being able to, again, have that ability to understand how that system works um, and try to get a deeper understanding of what is really happening behind the, the smoke screen of the narrative. So um, it's, it's not just about learning the language. You absolutely, I mean, that's the first uh, important step. Machine uh, translation is not going to be uh, helpful most of the time because it loses a lot of the nuances. It loses a lot of the, of the, um, like those fixed formulations that uh, being able to read um, directly the text will get you, will give you. And and more than that, it's also understanding the the broader broader context of uh, the, the of the ca characteristics of the system and the system of beliefs on which it operates. I think that projection or mirror imaging is never the the place to start, and it's uh, it takes a while to train analysts, um, but uh, it's. It's still very rewarding to be able to uh, go behind that smoke screen and and understand a little bit better what's happening behind it. I agree. Well, um, I know we're running out of time, and I just wanted to say thank you so much. We um, greatly value your insights here at Aspie, and we're excited to have you on the podcast today. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Sam. It was really great to um, be able to chat a little bit with you. And again, I feel like you should have been the one answering these questions. <laughs> While climate change is primarily viewed as an environmental challenge, Australia's national security community is increasingly focused on the implications of climate change for Australia's national security. Dr. Robert Glasser speaks to Dr. Tobias Ide about climate and Australia's national security and how climate hazards can lead to conflict. Okay, Tobias. Thank you very much for joining us today on our ASPE podcast. Uh, thanks for the invitation, and I'm happy to be here, Robert. Yep. So uh, some of our listeners may have seen the article that uh, you published in the Australian Journal of International Affairs on climate change and Australia's national security. That's clearly a topic that here at ASPE, at our Climate and Security Policy Centre, we're really deeply interested in. Um, and, and so it would be great to talk to you a bit about that article today, maybe beginning by maybe just a general, your general comments. Why is this topic so important, important enough to motivate you to write this article? And I know you've written on this topic quite a bit. That's an excellent question. So, so I think there's like there's two developments that motivate me. Um, I mean, on the one hand, climate change is changing the world we live in in a quite fundamental way in terms of, you know, higher temperatures, more droughts, but also more intense rainfall events, more disasters like storms and floods, 
Um, and that's something that is highly visible throughout Australia, but also throughout the region. And that will have all kind of adverse impacts on human health, on the human well-being, on the economies. So I think it would be quite naive to think it would have no implications on issues of security and conflict. And if it will have, um, and I'm pretty certain it will, then it would be very good, you know, like to study them and to be clear about them and have the knowledge at hand. Um, and I also yeah. think it, it's, it, it's it's quite a good time. And it's the second factor to study it with uh, the new government in place, which, you know, like uh, commissioned a, a report on the security implications of climate change that is still commissioned uh, with some pieces having been written by ASPE, by the Climate Council, by the Senate. So I feel like there's 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 growing interest. It's not only growing relevance; it's also growing interest among Australian audiences in the topic. So it, it was just like the right time to write on the right topic. <laughs> yeah, and and just for our listeners, the, the reference to the commissioning of some work on this, uh, Prime Minister Albanese, as one of his first acts as Prime Minister, was to instruct the Office of National Intelligence to produce a climate and security risk assessment, which was delivered and discussed at cabinet, we're told, uh, at the end of last year. And some of our listeners, if you go back and look at the uh, Home Affairs Minister's talk at her National Press Club speech, I think, uh, you know, we don't know, but I suspect it's reflecting what she probably heard in that climate and security risk assessment. So, yeah. So, yes, I also know, I know you've written on this question of the pathways from climate to conflict. And this is a very tricky topic, as you've noted before, the sort of correlating the links between a climate hazard and, and the outbreak of conflict. I also know you've published an interesting piece a while ago using AI or machine learning in some way to look at the statistical connection. So I don't know if you want to talk about that or more generally, but what are some of the main pathways that lead from climate hazards to conflict? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a tricky issue that clearly requires more research, but it's also an issue where we have advanced our knowledge quite significantly in the last four or five years. And indeed, there is a growing number of studies, including the machine learning one we recently conducted that, that shows that after extreme climatic events, be that disasters or unusually temperature or precipitation anomalies, we have a higher risk of different kinds of conflicts. It's usually not the most important conflict driver, so issues like weak statehood, previous political instability, economic decline, and so on, usually are better predictors of conflict risk, but, but climate factors usually are significant predictors as well. So I think the question you're asking is quite relevant, because even if we know that in order to do something about it or to act on it, we would obviously know why does climate change result in, in higher conflict risks. And... Um, I think there are like two broad explanations. So there's one which is more about individual grievances. So imagine you have big disaster in, in a country where you have a weak state, where people are already, you know, like sympathizing with rebel groups where the state is not able to help after a major flood or after a drought. People getting very angry about the state, they protest, they still don't get any help, or even worse, the protests are, you know, um, repressed by the police or the military, so people will get very angry, and uh, they might turn. They might they, they might turn to rebels. They might support rebels, or the people might fight back if the police wants to wants to repress um, the protests. And that that could 
erupt into into more large scale violence, and we we see that happening indeed. We see it more happening at the local level. So we see a lot of protests and riots happening in that space, but we see very little of these grievances actually driving people to join to join rebel groups. However, there's then there's the other pathway, and I mean that that's much more concerning when it comes to like large scale civil war stuff, which um, is climate change provides opportunities for armed groups. So, for instance, um, I mean usually the state is responsible for you know like providing welfare to people, responding to disasters and so on. Now imagine you're a farmer, you're living on your plot of land. A rebel leader asks you, look, do you want to join? Do you want to, we pay you some income, you fight for us against the hated government. And I said, look, I live quite well from my farm. I have no risk of being shot by the military or put in prison. Why should I join you? Now, two years later, a major drought and a major storm later, um, the whole harvest devastated, no more money left to send the children to school. Um, perhaps the state is not very present in the area anymore because a lot of the resources were, were deployed to the disaster response. Same little rebel leader approaches you again, says, hey, do you want to join? I pay you some income. All of a sudden, it becomes much more attractive. Um, and I think that's that's the pathway we, we see happening in, um, in, in quite a few countries in, in the Asia-Pacific region, actually. Actually, some of our work has highlighted that as well. The fact that these climate disruptions, these natural, not the right terminology to call a disaster, a natural disaster in this context, but where you have this, these disruptions and government services are basically absent because of weak government capacity, then these non-state actors can move into that space. I also remember reading an article talking about at the local level, as you said, that uh, I think it was focused on the US that noted just with an increase in temperature, there is a significant increase in conflict in areas like domestic violence. So just the heat alone, let alone, I, I know as we go from a family or an individual level up to you know, the question of what impact would this have, could this have on outbreak of war or large scale conflict? But it's interesting to look at the different scales of this issue. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, I, I totally agree with you. So psychological research is pretty unequivocal that the more stressed you are, and heat is like quite significant stressor, making people feel uncomfortable. The more aggressive they are, and the more likely they they are to engage in horn honking or fist fighting or, or whatsoever. I mean, it rarely translates up to the level of of civil war. Because if I'm angry about something, I'm more likely, you know, like perhaps to hit my neighbor or to, to, to use the horn in my car. But I mean, it's not like I, I join a rebel group. There's no one next door, perhaps even. Um, but I mean, still, it's still it's a considerable human security issue. Yeah, yeah. So you've sort of hinted at the answer to this next question I'm going to ask already, which is, is what are some of the challenges in analyzing the links between climate and conflict? We've sort of talked about them now. You've actually answered, identified some correlations. But do you want to elaborate that any further? I, th I think it's I think it's mostly it's mostly two, two challenges. So the first one is climate change is just one factor, and usually armed conflict is driven by you already have bad relations between groups. You have government incapable of dealing with them. You usually have like weak economies, so you have a lot of unemployed people you might be able to recruit, you have an availability of weapons from some source, and then climate change comes into this complex mix, and as with each complex mix, it's really hard to isolate the role of one factor, especially as climate change, you know, if we say 
state weakness needs to interact with climate change. But I mean, climate change puts a strain on the state. They have less income if there are more disasters. They need to spend more money on disaster recovery. They lose, they lose legitimacy if they don't do the disaster response properly. So climate change might impact state weaknesses. It might impact economic growth. So the factors, it's not just a lot of factors. It's also a lot of factors that are interacting with each other. And that's, that's really hard to tell apart. Um, I think research is getting better at it, but it's still hard. And the second thing is um, there's just some issues with data availability because, I mean, as you know, we have the correlations, but, you know, like in order to really trace the causal links, we might want to go to the Philippines and talk to all the remote areas of Kenya and ask people, like, why did you join the armed groups? Which disasters did you see before? What options did you have available? Now, going to these areas is obviously both risky and ethically problematic. So it's just like these data are not super easily available to analyze. And I guess, you know, there, it is important to point out that sometimes disasters create opportunities for peace building. And Aceh after the uh, Boxing Day earthquake and tsunami is a very good example of that. But uh, yes, I wouldn't say it's likely to be the rule as the climate continues to warm and these major weather-related hazards begin striking more often. I think also what you said about the complexity is really important because, as I know you know, and we've discussed here at ASPE a lot, this is really a systemic change that's happening. It's not a climate change isn't just a natural disasters issue or an environmental crisis. It will affect trade and uh, great power competition and a whole range of different factors. So yes, that complexity is really difficult. Geopolitics with a warming climate is like trying to maneuver chess pieces on an upending chessboard. So yeah, very complex and difficult. Let me bring this, since I know we don't have much time to continue this question about what we should be doing in Australia. Maybe you can combine some comments on the particular exposure and vulnerability of our immediate region uh, in the Indo-Pacific, but maybe maritime Southeast Asia, then what should we be doing now to address this uh, growing, rapidly growing problem? Yeah, so, I mean, to start with the last piece, I mean, the, the Asia-Pacific region is incredibly vulnerable to climate change. You already have Australia, which is susceptible to droughts, fires, floods for quite a while, all of which is going to worsen. You have the Pacific Island states, incredibly threatened by sea level rise. Um, you have countries like, like, like India, Philippines, which are historically strongly exposed to storms, droughts, floods, all of which are going to get worse, in addition to low levels of development and areas where the state has limited potential for creative action or positive action. So, I mean, the region is incredibly vulnerable. Now, add that to increasing geopolitical competition in the Pacific, which means more players trying to get a stake in which might lead to even more instability and competition. So what can we do about it? Um, so, so, I mean, I always think there's like, I always say there's like perhaps three good way forward. So the first one is, I mean, obviously it's a no-brainer climate change mitigation. Um, try to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, cut down on fossil fuel emissions, invest in um, renewable energy. Um, it won't help with all the negative impacts of climate change, but it will help with some. 
Um, then the second thing is um, adaptation. And adaptation, I mean, obviously means within Australia because some climate change impacts are virtually certain. Some degree of sea level level rise, some degree of, of weather changes, disaster frequency changes. Um, so we need to cope with these, um, for instance, by raising coastlines, um, improving irrigation systems, um, enforcing stormproof housing, and so on. But we also, I think Australia should also do that on an international level. And that actually provides a bit of an opportunity, if you want to may say so, because there's this environmental peace building idea. There's also this idea of disaster diplomacy, though. So there's actually the idea that groups and states can come together in the face of shared environmental challenges and cooperate, and by doing so, improve their relationships. And uh, the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, is already quite good in providing disaster relief to some states in our immediate region. So by supporting other countries to adapt to climate change, more drought-resistant agriculture, better coastal infrastructure, and so on, actually Australia could make a lot of friends in addition to having a more stable environment around the corner if it, if it avoids the political fallout from, from, from climate change-related conflicts. That's a wonderful point to end our discussion, that optimistic view that in the face of declining support for multilateral action, that maybe these challenges we confront with a warming climate will be an opportunity to strengthen multilateral action, or at least regional multilateral action. Tobias, thank you very much for the important work you're doing in this field and look forward to speaking with you again and seeing more of your work. And I think we'll try and post the link to your piece on the website for listeners who want to look at it more closely. Thanks for joining us. This week was Budget Week in Canberra and to break down the defence budget, Beck Shrimpton speaks to David Uren. They discuss defence projects and the usefulness or otherwise of measuring defence spending by GDP. I'm here today with David Uren, who has a long history of working in the defence and economics space and will be well known to many in the defence community. Hi, David. Thanks for joining Hi. me today. Yep. Um, look, what, we are, what we're really wanting to do today is get some quick takeaways and some initial impressions uh, now that we have the portfolio budget statements, of course. You know, what we see in this for defence, was there much new? Of course, we are, we've had quite a lot coming out of the government for defence over the last few months. So I guess the expectation uh, wasn't going to ever be too too high or there wasn't, uh, we never expected any big surprises. But um, what was in it for you? What surprised you? What reinforced what you sort of already knew. Can I get you just to canvas yeah. the contours of the budget from your perspective? Well, I think it's interesting that you see the the very beginnings of the introduction of the the, new, the AUKUS nuclear submarine program. You see a new agency being set up to run that. You see some real spending going out over the next, just over the next um, four years. I think it adds up to $5.6 billion, which is a fairly significant amount in terms of um, total um, uh, capital spending by defence over that period. So that that was, I guess, one thing that stood out. Another is that um, defence ambition to lift its workforce is still facing some struggles. Um, if you compare the the target f um, hiring 
last year compared with what what actually was achieved, um, you know, it's 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 falling significantly short, particularly in the army. I think it was about eight percent short. So um, the government has has brought in a new program whereby it's going to be providing bonuses um, uh, when people reach the end of their initial service period. And uh, there's quite a significant amount of money being allocated to that. That's um, uh, $400 million. Uh, That's to be um, found from the the rest of the defence budget. So I thought that was an an interesting side point. I guess the thing, though, that struck me most of all was... If you look at the defence, you know, there is this expectation that um, defence is going to need more money. It's going to need more money each year. And this is going to be um, a pro uh, a process, a steady process over um, over the coming decade and, and probably beyond that, the coming decades. Um, when you look at the budget just over the next four years, you can see Yes, it broadly follows that kind of trajectory that was really laid out in the 2020 um, uh, strategic update. But if you compare um, this year's budget with the budget that came out just before the election a a year ago, a little over a year ago, you know, the moves are are not quite so emphatic. So um, defence spending compared to March last year, the the estimates last last year, it's really only gone up about 2.5% over the next three years. You can compare those three years, the three years out to 2025, 26 in both this year's budget and last year's budget. Now, 2.5% increase... We've had inflation of six percent. Well, basically, we've had inflation of seven percent. So that's that's actually a real fall. When you poke those numbers a little bit more, um, and you you divide it between um, capital spending, um, sustainment, um, and and operations. Um, overall, capital spending is down one point nine percent over the next three years compared with last year. Now, part of that's undoubtedly the cancellation of the French submarines. Um, So there are a huge number of moving parts, but that's a very big moving part, and that has a a, a very significant impact. But it's notable that then when you look at um, uh, both the Army and the Air Force, their capital spending is also down over the next three years. So that's not really heading in the direction that we, we might have expected. I think that the reason, you know, there'll be a lot of reasons why capital spending is down in those those arms, but, you know, I think at least some of it is likely to be making room for uh, some of this other spending that the government has committed to, including um, you know, $3.4 billion over the next 10 years on, on a new innovation program and, 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 of course, the submarines. So I guess those, those would be some of my um, top-level takeouts from uh, looking at the budget. That's very helpful, uh, David. Thank you. you make it, it's, it's a really important point about just how far those defence dollars go and the fact that that is, of course, influenced so much by the uh, the macroeconomic picture well beyond defence. Defence does not operate in a, a vacuum. 
back to that sort of concept and 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 conversation it's often brought out in in the commentary and in the media or portrayed when you spend money on defense that you're taking money away from other parts of uh, the government pie and while I accept that that you know there is a government pie and it's and it's only so big um, there are a lot of choices that you can make around uh, efficiency and 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 synergy and and you know bringing uh, adjacent sort of sectors together that can help you really um, get a lot more out of that whole pie. Can you talk a little bit about that and perhaps really zero in on this? How helpful is percentage of GDP as defence spend? Have you got some comments on that? I think on on the second point first, percent of GDP, uh, it's a useful shorthand benchmark. If you want to compare spending here to spending overseas or spending now to spending some years ago, it's it's a useful benchmark, but um, you shouldn't read too much into it. Um, Defence, uh, in I think in the strategic update, said they were formally wanting to decouple any concept of defence spending from the share of GDP, um, basically because they didn't want defence spending to have to go up or down depending upon what was happening with the economy. And I think it was striking in uh, this year's budget that, that there's very low growth forecast, just over 1% growth for, for GDP this year. Um, well, defence spending is rising faster than that, so obviously um, defence spending will rise as a share of GDP. But I think you know, a point that was made in the... Um, uh, in, in the strategic review the the other week was that the level of defence spending should really be dictated by your assessment of what's required to meet the strategic circumstances in which the country is based. And that's that's a conversation of its own and that, um, you know, it's really on the basis of that that should decide what you, um, what you spend. In terms of, the, you know, the notion of there being, a, you know, some kind of fixed pie that... Um, uh, you know, a dollar taken from here goes to a dollar there. Well, I, you know, this is not the way that the budget works. Um, the budget is essentially funded by um, both taxation, other earned income and borrowings. The budget's in surplus, probably only briefly, but, you know, for the moment, borrowing's not, you know, not, won't, there won't be that much additional borrowing this year at least on a net basis, but governments are there to make choices. They can make choices if they wanted to spend more on social welfare or they want to spend more on defence, they can do so. They can do so by shuffling money from one area to another or by borrowing or by increasing taxation. They have a whole range of choices. Um, But that really is the prerogative of government and and the responsibility of government to um, make the best informed best judged choices that they can. Excellent. Thank you for that too. Look, I think we saw, um, you know, many shifts around projects or or confirmation of of projects that we uh, expected to continue continuing, confirmation of of delivery of specific capabilities and, and, you know, percentages of of spends of total programs in this next uh, financial year. I think one of the things that was revealing, and I'm really interested in your take on this one, is that there were there were folks who perhaps saw uh, risk um, because of 
the reduction in the infantry fighting vehicles and the cancellation of the second regiment of self-propelled howitzers that uh, perhaps we were looking at some, you know, maybe a reduction in, in the tanks and the engineer combat vehicles, that that didn't happen. Now, some people will say, well, well, why not? Is there, a, is there an inconsistent logic here? But it does talk to, doesn't it, that the, uh, the defence budget isn't quite as flexible or as agile as you might like. Some of these projects, they really do commit significant amounts of money over a number of years and, and in, in different years. And, and those choices that you might want to make um, can be more limited uh, than the public might expect. Can I get you to explain that a little bit better than I just did? Yeah. Yes, I mean, look, I don't have great detailed knowledge of individual programs, but but certainly, you know, it's generally true with procurement that you've got contracts, you've got commitments, um, you can't just back out of things willy-nilly without, you know, without there being consequences. Uh, you know, the, the very large amount of the, the budget is, is tied down and committed. And I guess, um, you know, I think it's it's something that I think is a bit of a concern that um, there's an awful lot of reshuffling of the defence budget with um, you know for example a three billion dollars contribution to the submarines over the next decade uh, coming from elsewhere in the budget other than the cancellation of the attack submarines the um, three point four billion for the innovation program. That's coming from somewhere else in the defence budget, unnamed. Uh, the four hundred million dollars for the um, for the employment for the retention bonuses that again is to be found from elsewhere in defence resources. Now, you know, defence defence budget is, is a large amount. It's um, rises to a, a little over sixty billion dollars over the next four years. Um, but you know, finding finding amounts of one two three billion dollars out of that is not easy when you know, there are there are contracts commitments employment uh, all all bound up in uh, in getting to where we are I think really in a way it, it, it leads to a larger point that uh, it, it would be unreasonable for to ask this budget to respond to but the other week we had the um, the strategic defense review it makes the comment that um, our defence spending should be dictated by uh, an appraisal of our strategic circumstances. Well, I think it's unarguable that our, you know, Australia's strategic circumstances, the, the, the geopolitical world in which we find ourselves, has become a great deal more complex over the last five years. That's why we're saying we're going to need an increased defence spend. Um, the strategic update is, I think, suggesting that we're going to have to acquire a lot of new capabilities that are not currently in defence forward planning um, and the defence spending may have to rise higher than is, is currently envisaged. And I think, you know, there are other areas of pressure for budget spending. And I think, you know, whether that's social welfare or infrastructure, education, health, there are always many demands on the budget. I think that 
the conclusion I draw out of this is that Australia really needs to have uh, an earnest conversation about whether we need to be taxing more, because I think we do need to be um, having a sustainable budget. And I'm not convinced that at the moment, with all these pressures, our interest is obviously on defence, but you know it's it's not defence alone. That uh, to have a, a secure and sustainable funding uh, requires a stronger tax base than that which we have. Um, you know, unfortunately, there was a you know a very significant review of the tax system was was done two thousand and ten, and really there was very little um, ever implemented out of it. But I think that at some stage, political leaders wanting to commit to the um uh to the kind of recommendation that the um strategic review the strategic update um called for uh, they're going to have to look at well how do we sustainably fund it you don't want to wind up in a position you know with the 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 two you know what what occurred to the 2010 and 2013 defense white papers which which largely outline outlined the kind of um developments that um you know we needed and that we still need but never really um backed that up with the funding if we're going to back up this need with the funding i think it there does have to be a uh, a difficult discussion in the nation about the tax that we pay yeah, I think that's a, a good point and a, and a nice zoom out way to end with that with a with a bigger question and and the and the macro question. The only the only thing I would add to to that is um, yes, it's the start of the conversation about how we fund all government priorities, but also I think there's a there's a big job to be done by government to explain the the, the rapidly changing strategic environment and just I, I, just I, what I defence provides us. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and I think that's that's how you. It's how you make the argument, you know. You've, you've got to spell out just what the what the change strategic circumstances are and and why that why they demand a response. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for that uh, that that brief but uh, but wave top and uh, and an early observation conversation with you on the budget. Look forward to uh, getting into it in more detail with you in various ways over the coming weeks and months. Thank okay, you. Okay, indeed. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.